0: Welcome to the podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition for February 2022. My name is Kelly Tappenden. I'm editor in chief and professor and head of kinesiology and nutrition at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The paper we'll discuss this month is entitled To Do Glutide in Short Bowel Syndrome Patients A Way Back to Normal Life. And the authors that we'll be speaking with are Felix Harpine, Lucas Schlager, and Christopher DeWood. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Professor, for having
0: us. So, you are at the Department of General Surgery at the Medical University of Vienna. And I was impressed to see that you're using to do in your patients with short bowel syndrome, because depending on the country, how care is provided to these patients, it varies quite a bit in different countries. So, it's nice to be able to see your patient set uh, and how you approach short bowel syndrome and management with glutide. When did you start this work?
1: You mean you mean the the workup as a paper or when would you start to work with Tuduglutide as the drug?
0: Tell us about glutide. It was approved in December of 2012 here in the US. What about in Vienna?
1: It was approved uh, in 2015, actually in Europe. And we started using it here in Vienna in June, 2016.
0: Okay, so fairly early on, and how big is your SBS population or your home PN service? How many patients do you have? At the time of our
1: analysis from the our study, the our cohort was twenty eight uh, SBS IF uh, patients, which was malignant and non malignant short bowel syndrome patients, and actually the cohort of only non malignant patients at that time, was um, seventeen patients.
0: So you have several malignant patients in in your population. Yes. Okay. Now. We're, of course, interested in trying to reduce the amount of parenteral nutrition that these patients with short bowel syndrome are dependent on, because that's going to improve their quality of life and certainly reduce long-term complications. And to do glutide, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, is a analog of glucagon-like peptide 2, which stimulates what's called intestinal adaptation, increases in structure, increased functional capacity in the residual intestine, and then serves as a benefit to patients with short bowel syndrome. Uh, I provide that just as a way of background. Tell us about the cohort then. You ended up with 13 patients out out of your cohort. What were your inclusion, exclusion factors, and tell us about the group you studied?
1: So as I already mentioned, um, the start point was 17 patients with non-malignant uh, short bowel syndrome and intestinal failure. And we had to exclude actually four patients. The treatment course was too short in three of the patients for yes. them to be
2: included. And one patient was very incompliant, even though we really tried to get her on board um, with our treatment regimen, but she sometimes refused to see our home care So it was difficult for us to really verify that she took the
1: medication as we
0: prescribed it to her. Sure. Yeah, some of the patients struggle.
1: Yeah. So we've finally ended up uh, with 13 patients with non-malignant short bowel syndrome. And we treated them with Thetaglutide over a median duration of 144 weeks with 0.05 milligram per kilogram body weight uh, once daily. And the analysis uh, included a a time frame from June 2016 to June
0: 2020. Now, when you say you eliminated, I think, two patients because the treatment course was too short, what do you mean by that?
1: So we aim for the the minimum uh, length Of treatment for with tetacutide was six months to be included in this retrospective cohort analysis. We excluded them from the study, but of course, treated them with uh, tetacutide.
0: Okay, now was the treatment course low because they dropped out or because they responded very quickly?
2: No, no, we continued to give them the therapy, but at the point where we started writing the paper, the patients uh, didn't have the six months of treatment. Ah. So we didn't include them, but all of the patients who were not included are now
0: responders. Very good. Uh, that helps clarify it. So you really had one patient drop out and it was due to concerns that that they were non-compliant. Okay. So how do you approach, uh, I'm impressed that you had had that many patients, basically 13 or 14 completes the trial period of at least six months. How do you approach to do glutide? Sometimes in the U S we find that patients maybe a little uncertain with some of the early side effects that they might have and and they get nervous and stop it for that reason not yeah. realizing that those are usually self-limiting what's your approach in vienna
1: well
2: we are very fortunate to work with a patient support group who the patient who got the drug in 2016 and some of the very early patients who received the drug initially, they were so impressed with the results that on their own merit, they started to form a patient support group. So in that sense, we are very lucky that most of our patients are finding us nowadays over the support group. So they usually just Google their problems and then they end up on the homepage of the patient support group. And then usually the support group contacts us so most of the patients who we, who we are seeing at our university hospital, most of them are very well informed when they come see us and they have those positive presentations in the, our other patients who they usually get to know before they get to know us. So they, most of them already know what they're into.
0: Very good. How long had your patients on average and, and the range been on parenteral nutrition?
1: Uh, mean uh, duration of the intestinal failure at the starting point of tetaclutide was 23 a mo- uh, month.
0: Okay. What was the least and the longest?
1: The, the least was, I think, four or five months. Yeah.
0: Okay.
1: And the longest was a couple of years. Yeah. What was their baseline PN requirement? They were uh, pretty high. So we had baseline, total parental uh, volume, of around three liters per day.
0: Three liters per day. That is high, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's really high.
0: Okay. And were they all full parenteral nutrition or were some just fluid patients?
1: There was one patient who was only on fluids. All the other patients had a combination of uh, parenteral nutrition and parenteral fluid.
0: And what was the major
1: etiology for these patients? So out of the 13 patients, eight suffered from uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which was in all cases, Crohn's disease, two had a vascular event, and three had their intestinal failure due to surgical complications and subsequent small bowel removal.
0: So a pretty typical type of etiology in this cohort, maybe slightly um, towards the Crohn side, does that mean that you had many ostomy patients?
1: Actually not, which is actually really interesting that 10 out of 13 patients had their, their colon in continuity.
0: Oh, really? So, okay. So that's yeah. that's a nice advantage. So only three yeah. patients had ostomies. Yes. Okay. Thank you for giving us insight into your cohort. You said that many of the patients came to you due to an online support group uh, established in your community. How do you how do you manage them when you take them in? I, I know one of the issues that you highlight in your paper is the importance of the multidisciplinary team or approach to that. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: So most of the patients we see when they initially come to see us, a lot of them don't actually need typical diet. So the first thing we do is to actually objectify how much their fluid intake is, how much their parenteral nutrition is, how much their output is, which is difficult for a lot of patients. Uh, we weigh them, they get a, a BIA, so a bioimpedance analysis. And in addition to that, we also do a lab work and look at the nutritional status of the patients. We work with a really wonderful dietitian who unfortunately can't be here today because her English isn't good enough. So she doesn't feel comfortable talking in English, but she's our case manager. So the patients we see, she's the one who's in contact with them every single day. And she's also the one who manages all of their problems. After we've initially seen the patients, we try to optimize their nutritional status, which we do together with our colleagues from the gastroenterology department. And most of the patients stabilize with a good um, support. And only a few patients actually then are in need of Tidogluvile and if a patient receives phenoclodide from us, we work together with a company who visits the patients at home. So they have home care nurses who teach the patients how to administer the drug, how to safely administer their um, parenteral nutrition or the fluids. They come and they measure the patient's weight. They document how much their urine output is. And they give feedback back to us, so the gastroenterologists, us the surgeons, and the dietitian. And this is a fluid process. So in the beginning, most patients get visited by the home care nurses daily and get daily calls from our dietitian and as soon as the treatment progresses and the patients feel more comfortable in administering their own therapies and kind of get a feel how they start to feel now what's normal for them what's not normal for them according to that the visits get rarer for the patients but the main contact person for all the patients remains our dietitian, so they always have a person who they're able to call and we think that like, this is the, the key, or our dietitian is the key to our success because she always gets ahead of the problems and is very efficient in getting the patients the help they need as soon as possible.
0: Very good. So, that's a very high level of support that your patients are getting, particularly early on, uh, and maybe why you don't have the dropout rates that are reported in other countries. Now, how much are the patients emphasizing diet? So in order to reduce the PN, of course, we need to be able to have those, those patients start with oral, increase their oral intake. Is the dietitian spending a lot of time on individualized diet recommendations?
2: Yes. She's almost a little bit obsessive about that. So she sees the patient, usually together with us for the first visit, and she documents it, lets the patients document exactly what they're actually eating for a few days. So she gets a feel of what the patients are in need of or what they're lacking and she makes individualized treatment plan for all of our patients which i think is very what all dietitians do but again as soon as she started the, the therapy she also calls the patients at the end of the day and sees if they were able to adhere to the treatment plan or if they need anything changed in order for them to be better able to adhere to the treatment plan so this is also how we get from i would say we don't have the data on this, but from the patients we see in our clinic, I'd say about only 10 to 20 percent actually need tl diet after they've seen our dietitian.
0: Oh, she sounds like a great dietitian. Which among the authors is your dietitian? Huttera, Elizabeth. Okay, very good. Please send my compliments to her. Um, I'm sorry we weren't able to. This isn't a forum that that worked so much for her. So when we look at the timeline, we know that the steps phase three study was a six-month timeline. However, there was an extension study. And when you look at the responders rate in those data, after six months, there was a 63% responders rate. And after 30 months, after the extension study, there was a 93% responders rate. So all but two of 30 patients were able to become responders. And when I look at your data, uh, specifically figure one, it seems like you made good solid reductions in the first 12 weeks. So, in the first three months. However, in order to really get down to that enteral autonomy or reduction in PN, it, it took on average 96 weeks. Am I examining that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Right. So, I think that that's something that is also very important beyond the excellent interdisciplinary care and frequent coaching that you're giving these patients. You also gave them the time to be successful and recognize that this is a slow and steady process, right? I think that in some patients' minds and some clinicians, they feel like, well, maybe this isn't going to work for me. And really, in very few cases, do patients not respond, but some do take longer to respond. And your, your data are an excellent example of that again.
1: Yeah, another point I think which is important is if you you mentioned the the STEPS trial and there were actually two phase uh, three trials. And when you compare the placebo group between the first and the second trial, I observed that there was only 6% responder rate in the placebo group in the first uh, trial and 30% responders in the placebo group in the second phase three trial. And the only difference was that the reductions of the parenteral fluid and nutrition was 10% every month. If the 48 urinary uh, output was over 10% from the baseline. And in the second phase three trial, they uh, loosened this up a little bit and were allowed to have a reduction up to 30%. That's right.
0: It was 10 to 30% in the second Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you think that might be why many of the patients in the placebo in the second approach did better? Yes. Because the clinician was more aggressive as weaning with weaning. Yes. Excellent insight. Now, how did you approach weaning in these patients?
2: When it comes to the parenteral nutrition, we tend to be a little bit on the more aggressive side. And we find that most of our patients tolerate this very well, especially if they adhere to the um, treatment plan that was provided to them by our dietitian. It's very rare that we have to reintroduce a higher dose of parenteral nutrition. What- we find to be a lot more tricky is the reduction of the fluid support in the parental fluid support in those patients. Especially in our younger patients who tend to be a little bit more active and need more fluids. And then in addition to that, also the, the seasons in, in Austria tend to be very extreme. So we have very hot summers So, especially in those periods, if if we start weaning the patient and we come to the point of the weaning of the fluids, the IV fluids in the summertime, it tends to be a lot more difficult than it is in the winter time, but usually, and I think we can see that in our best as well, that parental nutrition weaning works very well, also very aggressively. And the weaning of the fluids is a more difficult process and it takes a lot of individualized treatment for each patient to, to find the right amount and the right time to reduce fluid support.
0: Sure, I think that's good insight. Similar to what we see here in the US and, and the seasonal variation, it's certainly, certainly difficult, particularly for those who have physical jobs and work outside. Um, they're, they're very difficult to manage in the summer. So given this good success, congratulations on your success with Duglutide. I think you've really shown what opportunities are available for patients with short bowel syndrome with glutide. What would be your top recommendations to clinicians who are looking at using glutide in their short bowel patients?
2: I think it's important that the patients are treated in a multidisciplinary setting. So I, I don't think that gastroenterologist alone or a dietitian alone or a surgeon alone can really bring the most benefit to the patient. I think it's always best if there's a multidisciplinary approach to, to treating those patients. And I think what's equally important is that patient follow-up should be, in my opinion, very tight mesh. So I think it's important, especially in the beginning of treatment, I think in the first six months, it's crucial to really see your patients on a, well, we have contact on, with them on a daily basis, but I think at least twice a week is important
0: how often do you would you recommend bringing them in then for full clinical exam, nutrition assessment, et cetera?
2: We were actually cheating a little bit, and we there's a treat-to-target concept in rheumatology that the rheumatologists use in order to treat their um, rheumatoid arthritis patients, and I think that that's a good concept that can be used in patients with SPSIF, but only if they if the treatment is initiated. I think in the beginning, so that sorry, that would be three months. To, to see the patients in, in clinic. But I think that's only possible for patients who are already in a stable state.
0: Okay, uh, getting them to that stable state, you see them more frequently?
2: Yeah, we see them as much as they needed. So the home care nurses see them pretty much daily. Our dieticians calls them daily. And in the beginning phases, we see them once or twice, once or every second week.
0: Very good. Um, again, congratulations to all of you for your success. I think you've provided a nice model for others to move forward in, in success with GLP-2 analog therapies in patients with short bowel syndrome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank, Thank you nice. for having us. You're very welcome. For our listeners, please do go to the February 2022 issue of j and read this important paper entitled, To Do in Short Bowel Syndrome Patients, a way back to normal life.